Zechariah chapter 10. And let's give careful attention to this, because this is the very word of God. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall, be as though as, uh, they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles, and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. <coughs> Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Well, Father, do bless your word to us. Teach us from it. Strengthen our faith. Build us up in the faith through the means of grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, not this past week, but the week prior, I was all week up in Columbia on Fort Jackson for some uh, military training. And there's a base newspaper that they publish every week. It's, uh, I forgot what it's called, but anyway, <clears throat> you pick it up for free at the commissary or the exchange and um, the cover story on the issue that came out while I was up there uh, was uh, changes in the air um, and I thought when I, when I saw that I thought hmm, maybe they're talking about some big changes coming in the army or something uh, uh, structural changes or policy changes but it turns out it was just a reference to some uh, 
recent changes of command and changes of responsibility among senior leaders on post. Leadership transitions, in other words. <coughs> and I thought of that because Zechariah 10 is about leadership transitions. God's people had been led astray by and suffered under bad leadership, bad shepherds. And here in Zechariah 10, God announces his plans to change things. In the final analysis, it's the Lord's anointed who will lead and care for the people. So this passage teaches us that the Lord's anointed redeems, strengthens, and restores his people. So what we're going to see first is a rebuke to the false gods, and then we'll take note of shake up in Judah, <clears throat> and then homecoming in Israel. So first of all, rebuke to the false gods. God encourages his people at the beginning of this chapter to pray. He encourages them to ask for rain from the Lord. Verse 1, ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. <clears throat> and he's encouraging them, encouraging them to pray for rain in the season for rain. In other words, it's the season of the year when you would expect rain. And I think God's point is, it's not a foregone conclusion that the rain's going to come. He's encouraging them to pray for the things that they need. And he's calling upon them to pray to him for these things because they're a blessing from God. He's the very God, not only who gives the rain, but he makes the very storm clouds. Uh, Psalm 35, one, excuse me, 135 verse 7 speaks of the Lord in this way. It says, he it is who makes the clouds to rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. All the forces of nature, everything that occurs in the meteorological systems all around the world, all the weather, weather patterns, they're under the dominion of God. He, he, he's Lord over them. He orchestrates them. He creates them. And so it's good news that this one who forms the storm clouds is going to give rain. And he'll see to it that the earth brings forth vegetation. And he always does that. And, you know, we get a little tripped up sometimes, I think, because we notice that, that he does that even when we don't deserve it. In fact, we never deserve any good thing from God, do we? But uh, people in Jesus' day, no doubt, noticed that God, they believed he sent rain and he gave rain, but they noted that, you know, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The, the upright, godly farmer and then the wicked farmer. They both get rain for their crops. And Jesus said, that's right. And I want you to be like my father in that way. He's merciful. He's gracious to the ungrateful. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. <clears throat> but we're not to presume and, and when people observe the fact that God sends the rain and he sends it on people who are serving him and people who don't care about him. So is the rain just something that comes on, of its own? And no, no, no. Rain is the gift of the Lord. He sends it. 
And so ask him for it. Well, there's a problem that God addresses here in Zechariah 10. And that problem is that the house of Judah had been asking for rain. They'd been asking for lots of things, many blessings, but not from God. They'd been asking from, from false gods. That, that habitual pattern of, of calling out to false gods is what had caused the nations to go into exile in the first place. God's bringing their, them to recollect that. Because before Assyria came and swept away the northern kingdom and before Babylon came and swept away the southern kingdom, the people had been in this recalcitrant habit of crying out to Baal. <clears throat> Why Baal? Well, according to the, uh, the mythology of the Canaanites, Baal was supposedly the god of fertility. So if you wanted to have good crops, Baal was the guy to go to. He was the one to give your sacrifices to because they believed that it was Baal who uh, was the god of thunderclouds. I think that's why Psalm 135 says God is the one, Yahweh is the one who forms the thunderclouds, not Baal. But the people had been calling upon false gods and they'd been doing it for generation after generation. And so God tells them in this chapter of Zechariah, verse 2, the household gods utter nonsense. Household gods had been a big problem with the people of Israel, and they'd been a problem for a long, long time. You go all the way back and think of uh, Jacob. Let, let's, let's look at this in, in our Bibles, okay? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. And let's lest we uh, kind of imagine and envision some, some period where the people were worshiping God with a pure heart and with a united heart. Um, you know, that, that never really happened. Uh, Jacob, after he's come back from the land of Padan Aram, he's with his family. They had stopped for a while in Shechem. And then God in Shechem told Jacob, I want you to go back to Bethel where I appeared to you at first. And so Jacob's getting ready to move his entire household and in Genesis 35, verse 2, it says, So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. There were foreign gods in Jacob's household. You wouldn't expect that, would you? Or turn to Joshua chapter 24. And when I say Joshua and say chapter 24, you know that the people have inhabited the land now. They have conquered it. They're dwelling in it. And what's the situation? There, your, your Bible might have a heading like covenant renewal at Shechem there. But in Joshua 24, verse 14, Joshua has to say to the people, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Still false gods among them. Now turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Remember you had the priest Eli and his wicked sons. And the people were fighting against the Philistines and 
and Eli died, and his sons were killed in battle, and the ark was captured. Well, eventually the Philistines sent the ark back because God had been bringing plagues on them because they were keeping his ark in their possession. And after the ark came back, 1 Samuel 7, verse 3, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Those are just three examples from early on. And if you've read the books of Kings, read the books of Chronicles, you know what a chronic problem idolatry and household gods were for the people of Israel. Now it would appear, as best we can tell, that that problem was finally cured by the exile. It would seem that for the most part, after the people came back, after those 70 years of exile, they had learned their lesson, maybe, and you don't see a whole lot, read a whole lot about household gods and worshiping Baal among the, the, the Israelites after they came back to the land. But they still needed to be reminded that these household gods are impotent, that they're false gods, they can't do anything. And Honestly, you don't have to have a statuette or a carved figure in order to have an idol, do you? Because we've all had them. We've probably never set up an actual physical idol in our home and bowed down to it, but we've got idols in here. Don't forget what Calvin said about the human heart. He was exactly right. The human heart is just an idol factory. It keeps churning them out. And so we've got this rebuke to false gods and to household gods and idols in verse 2. And what does God say about them? He says they, they utter nonsense. The household gods utter nonsense. The fact is they don't utter anything at all. You remember Psalm 115 where the psalmist is describing the idols and the false gods of, of the nations. And he says, makes, he makes the observation, they have mouths because, you know, whoever carved them gave them a mouth but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. He goes on and on. But when he says the, the household gods speak lies, other people speak for the household gods, you see. And whatever they speak, whatever they speak in behalf of the household gods, those are lies. Um, diviners speak lies. What's a diviner? A diviner or a diviner is a is a fortune teller, basically. They, uh, they seek to uh, tell the future by means of some spiritual insight, communication with spirits. And divination was forbidden in Israel. Didn't stop them from practicing it. But here's God's assessment. The diviners see lies. They tell false dreams. They give empty consolation. That's, uh, that's kind of summed up by what Jeremiah said in chapter 6 of his prophecy, verse 13 and 14. He said, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. 
That's what God is saying here, basically. He says they, they give empty consolation. Therefore, he says in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, the people wander like sheep. They're afflicted <clears throat> for lack of a shepherd. So idolatry, in some respects, is a problem connected to leadership. Occasionally, a really good king would come along in Judah, and he'd get rid of the idols. It never stayed that way. The situation never, uh, never took, but uh, yeah, there were some good kings who did that. And they forbid the people from worshiping Baal, other false gods of the nations. But then when another king would rise up, would permit or even promote Baal worship. So idolatry tended to be a problem connected with leadership. And that's the one fundamental problem among God's people that he's addressing through his prophet here. Lack of leadership. And so when a corporation has bad leadership or has problems in leadership, what happens? They have a shake-up. And God says, I'm going to do a shake-up. I'm going to make a shake-up in Judah. We're going to have a change of management, a change of leadership. Zechariah chapter 10 and Zechariah chapter 11 focus on leadership and the uh, influences of it. And just like there was change in the air at Fort Jackson, we find out changes in the air in Judah. Look at verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. And he starts talking about how he's going to raise up rulers for them. He's going to raise up leaders for them. Good ones. Because he wasn't happy with the shepherds. Shepherds is actually, you know, we, when you hear the word shepherd, when I hear the word shepherd, I tend... Uh, almost automatically to think of Jesus, right? Because he called himself the good shepherd. And he used so many shepherding and sheep uh, parables and analogies. But even in the Old Testament, leaders were often described as shepherds. They were shepherds of the people. And God says, I'm going to punish these leaders. I'm going to punish the shepherds. <coughs> you might have a footnote in your Bible. If, if you're looking at the ESV... You might have a footnote that says um, that word leaders actually is literally male goats. Um, that's true. Some other versions translate it differently. Uh, they talk about goat herds or whatever. The, the point is that what it's really referring to is leaders. Um, and God says that he cares for his flock, whereas the leaders of the people were neglecting the flock. They were abusing the flock. And so he announces his intent to turn things around for Judah. He's going to make Judah this oppressed people, this, uh, this people that were lacking a shepherd. He's going to make them like a majestic steed as opposed to an oppressed sheep or an oppressed flock. So there's this new leader, a new shepherd coming, coming from the Lord himself. And he's described in several ways. 
described as a cornerstone. From him shall come the cornerstone. He's described as a tent peg. He's described as a battle bow. So let's take those in order. Cornerstone. That, of course, is rich with messianic implications. And so in uh, Isaiah 28, verse 16, you've got these familiar words. Behold, I'm the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. And that passage gets quoted numerous times in the New Testament. But one of the most important things about Zechariah's use of the term cornerstone is that prophecy of Isaiah was given many, many years before Zechariah. It was given before Judah went into exile. And so when people hear Zechariah speaking in the name of the Lord and speaking of this one that God is going to give uh, this, the cornerstone, people would have connected the dots. People would have made the connection. They would have understand, uh, understood. They would have uh, some context, in other words, for this idea of God raising up a leader who's called the cornerstone. Peter and Paul in the New Testament quote this very text, Isaiah's text, in reference to Christ. He's the cornerstone. And then there's another reference to cornerstone. We saw it quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ in our reading from Matthew last week. Matthew 21 but it's in Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And of course, Jesus himself applies that concept and that verse to himself. Peter does as well when he's preaching in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. So this alone, just the, just the notion of the cornerstone uh, points to the fact that this shake-up that's going to happen in Judah ultimately points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It ultimately, ultimately looks ahead to Him. He's also described as a tent peg. From Him, the tent peg. Well, in terms of a, of a tent, a tent peg functions in pretty much the same way that a cornerstone does for a structure or a house. It provides stability. It gives strength. It gives support. And then there's reference to the battle bow. We, we read a little bit about a battle bow in uh, Zechariah 9 last week. And here's that's a clear reference to military strength. Um, I don't know, maybe there were different kinds of bows that you'd use for hunting or as, as opposed to for battle. But in this case, the, the clear implication is military might is in view and this one uh, that God or these, this leader or leaders that God is going to raise up have these attributes at, at the end of verse 4 uh, after he mentions cornerstone tent peg battle bow he says from him every ruler in other words for the, from the Lord every ruler all of them together it says so he seems to be speaking of a host of leaders a host of leaders whom the Lord God will empower for victory. 
And then in verse 16, uh, verse 6, excuse me, the theme transitions from strength to war, strength for war to homecoming. Look at verse 6. He transitions uh, from one concept to the other. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. And this uh, indicates reunion of God's people from both the northern and the southern kingdoms. This is remarkable. It might not jump off the page, but look at verse 6. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. That's a reference both to the north and, northern and southern kingdoms of the people of Israel. Verse 6, Judah, that would be the southern kingdom. That's what the southern kingdom was called. That's the, kingdom, that's the kingdom that remained loyal to the line of David and where David continued to reign, and that's the kingdom where Jerusalem was. But then you had the northern kingdom, and that's referred to here by the name Joseph, because who were Joseph's two sons? Ephraim and Manasseh. And those two tribes were the biggest tribes in the northern kingdom. They were so big, for example, that Ephraim was almost synonymous for Israel. Sometimes God uh, referred to Israel as Ephraim. And the reason this is so remarkable is because Judah and Israel had not been a united kingdom for 400 years. You think about it, the people, the children of Israel, they're brought out of bondage in Egypt, they travel through the wilderness, they come into the land, they occupy it, and they're one nation for a while, and then after the reign of Solomon, they split up, and for four centuries, from the time of the split to the days of Zechariah, 400 years, to put that in perspective, the American Civil War ended 135 years ago. 135 years ago. Now imagine, just for the sake of argument, just for the sake of comparison, that our nation hadn't reunited and that we'd broken into a northern and southern country. That was only 135 years ago. That was just a little over a third of the time that Israel and Judah had been separated. Or I think of what a big deal, you know, we lived in Germany for seven years. I think of what a big deal uh, uh, Einheitstag is in Germany. That's German Reunification Day because under the Soviet regime, there was East Germany, which was communist, and there was West Germany, which was NATO, and a free country. And then they were reunited in 1990. And it's a big deal. They celebrate it every year. That's the big national holiday, Einheitstag. Unity Day. It was a difficult, it was a joyous reunification, but it was a hard one. And it was only 45 years ago that they split up. Judah and Israel had been two divided countries, two separate countries for four centuries. And now in Zechariah's prophecy, God's talking about them in terms of unity, in terms of coming back together. He's foreshadowing that. And that brings us to our final point, a, a homecoming in Israel. Look again at verse 6. 
I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And look at verses 8, and 10, 8 through 10. I will whistle for them and gather them in. That idea of like, you know, when somebody whistles to, to call a dog, you know, and if the dog is trained to come when a person whistles, he whistles and they come. Or, or uh, shepherds sometimes whistle to summon their sheep, to gather their sheep. God uses that same expression when he, uh, when he foretells and prophesies of bringing Babylon to destroy Judah drawing Nebuchadnezzar in to, to overtake the land, to sweep away the nation and carry Judah into exile. He says, I'm going to whistle for this foreign nation. Here he says, I'll whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, verse 8. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them into the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there's no room for them. That process was already underway. You know, the people are back in the land. The people to whom Zechariah was prophesying were living in the land. But they were a small group. They were a, a feeble group. God's saying here, many more will return from various lands. And we could say, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Uh, he says, he will call them. He says that in verse 8. In verse 10, he says, he will bring them. And he's going to bring them from foreign lands. And, in, and he's going to place them in Gilead and in Lebanon. Those are very fertile regions. Those were uh, places, Gilead in particular, that's that great land that a few of the tribes, when the people were getting ready to take possession of the promised land, said, hey, wait, we've got lots of cattle, and this place is great for cattle. Can we just stay here? And God let them. They had to go help their brothers and sisters secure their own land, but that was fertile, bountiful land. And God says, I'm going to bring my people there. I'm going to bring them until there's no more room for them. As he speaks here of uh, Egypt and Assyria, I think it's pretty clear that those nations are being used representatively <coughs> in the sense that they're, they're kind of shorthand for all nations that oppress God's people, all the enemies of God's people. And the reason I say that um, it certainly would include actual Assyria and Egypt, but really by the time of Zechariah, neither Egypt, well, Assyria didn't exist anymore, and Egypt really wasn't a significant power uh, any longer. And then there's more comprehensive application in verse 9. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. So you've got the, the broader reference there. And then when we get to verse 12, the end of the text, verse 12 is speaking again of God's people. And God says, I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. That expression, they shall walk in his name, that's the only occur occurrence of that phrase in the Old Testament. And one of the commentators said about that phrase, 
but it means this. Restored relationship with the Lord will reshape their lives so that they reflect his character to the world. So God promised to save his people by raising up new leadership and overthrowing foreign oppressors. Historically speaking, the powerful and influential and ideal leadership spoken of in Zechariah 10 never never really materialized. The people of Israel continued in the land, of course, but as they did, it was under the rule of the Persians. They were still oppressed by a foreign nation. Then Persia, of course, was was, uh, overrun and supplanted by the, the, the Greek empire. Then eventually the Greeks were conquered by Rome. But something really important happened during Israel's subjection to the Roman Empire, didn't it? Remember that cornerstone that was talked about in Psalm 118? That cornerstone and the one Isaiah foretold, he came. And so it would seem that the ultimate shakeup in Judah occurred when the son of David appeared to shepherd his people Israel. And the ultimate homecoming in Israel is happening as the Holy Spirit gathers God's people from the nations, drawing them to that good shepherd who truly cares for the flock. The prophet Daniel spoke of all this when he was interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream to him. Look at it with me, Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and he wanted his wise men to interpret it to him, but he wouldn't tell them the dream. He said, the way I'll know if you're really giving me the right interpretation, and if you really have insight into this, is if you can tell me the dream too and interpret it, then I'll know that you're not just making stuff up. And none of them could do it, and Nebuchadnezzar was furious, and he ordered all the wise men to be killed. But then Daniel came along and said, wait, time out. There's a God in heaven who can interpret your dream. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar his dream, and then he gives the interpretation. Daniel chapter 2, and I want to focus especially on verses 44 and 45, because he's talking about a last group of kings. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall that kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And the interpretation was that that stone was going to shatter the nations, and it was going to come during the days of those kings, which equates to the Roman Empire. So what's the relevance to you and me? (laughs) Does that have anything to do with us? Uh, What's the uh, application? Well, here's how I think we can apply Zechariah 10 
in our own lives. First of all, live in active recognition that it is God who gives every good and perfect gift. The uh, household gods, the false gods, the gods of this world, they're not the ones who give rain. It's the true and living God. He's the one who gives the increase. He provides the growth. He's the one that we praise because it's from him that all blessings flow. So live in active recognition that everything you have comes from him. Secondly, Christians are engaged in battle described by verse 5. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. They shall put to shame the riders on the horses. In a sense, that's what we're engaged in in our walk with Christ and in our life in this present age. But we fight not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And as we fight spiritual battles, we need spiritual weapons. We need spiritual armor. So put on the whole armor of God. Take it up. And don't try to fight spiritual battles with weapons of the flesh. Thirdly, just as God promised to strengthen his people in Zechariah 10, he will strengthen you. Chapter 10, verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. He promised to strengthen them and he promises to strengthen you. Verse 12. I will make them strong in the Lord, it says. And they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Again, that pertains to you. It pertains to me. But as it pertains to us, it's a spiritual strengthening. These bodies are going to continue to grow old. They're going to continue to become weaker. But even as the outer man decays, God will renew us inwardly day by day. He will strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. And all of this is through Christ. Who is that cornerstone? Chosen to precious. Raised up to shepherd his people. He is our redeemer. He is our strength. The Lord, our shepherd, is the one who restores our souls. But let's remember that in order to redeem us, the cornerstone first had to be rejected by the builders, didn't he? He had to suffer. The son had to be rejected by the father, and his blood had to be shed to fulfill the covenant. And those are the things we remember as we come to the table together. So let's ask God to help us and to strengthen us as we come to the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we thank you that you raised up the Lord Jesus to be the good shepherd, to be the cornerstone. And we come now to the table to remember his death in our behalf. And as we do, we pray for grace. And we pray that you'd enable us to partake worthily of the bread and the cup to the glory and the honor of our Savior and to our own spiritual good. And we pray this in his name. Amen.